Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Um, this week, uh, James Bond's been busy getting his picture taken next to Formula One cars, so he couldn't join us this week. So I'm your film host, James Page from MI6. And this week, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by AJ Chiradri, Lisa Funnel, Bill Koenig, and Ben Williams. And would you like to introduce yourself, everybody? My name's AJ Chowdhury. I'm the co-author with Matthew Field of Some Kind of Hero, the remarkable story of the James Bond films, an 800-page biography updated to include The Road to Bond 25 and published by the History Press. I'm also the spokesperson for the James Bond International Fan Club. Uh, hi, I'm Lisa Funnel. I am an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I am the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond with Klaus Dodds, as well as the editor of For, Your, uh, For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. I forget the name of my own book. <laughs> uh, and I published a lot on gender and geopolitics in James Bond. And I'm Bill Koenig. I run a book called The Spy Command, and I also have an article in the new MI6 Confidential, kind of a timeline of uh, what happened prior to filming, starting on uh, Bond 25. It was uh, adapted from a site of mine called the Bond 25 Timelines. Hi, I'm Ben Williams. Um, I write for MI6 Confidential Magazine and the website mi6hq.com. All right, so I think we'll start off. Uh, Bill, you've got the honors this week because you took a field trip uh, to do some research. Would you like to share with everybody what you discovered? Yes, I went down, I was I was on vacation, and so I went down to Indiana, my home state, and I spent a few hours at the Lilly Library at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. I had been there once before, but that was like back in 1997, and I had I'd been meaning to go back, and I finally decided I'm going to do it this time. And I spent oh, two, two and a half hours looking at a Casino Royale manuscript. I was advised later it wasn't the very first one Fleming worked on. So it must have been like a second one, second or third, maybe even that he worked on. But even so, it was very much a work in progress. And it was uh, it, it was just very interesting to read. Um, there's this kind of myth that, well, Fleming wrote, you know, his the novels while in Jamaica. And then that was it. He just you know, had his, had his novel. And it's like, he spent a lot of time working and revising probably more so in the earlier novels than the later, but still it, it's not like he banged out a novel in a month or so. He, I mean, he definitely worked very hard on it in this one. There were a number of interesting things. For example, he originally typed a different name for Miss Moneypenny. Um, in the manuscript, the chief of staff is talking to her and as a nickname calls her Petty. And then that was like crossed out. It was actually not so much crossed out. It was like all these little loops, very tight. And then it was written in Penny. And then the subsequent reference was you know, written in Miss Money Penny over another name. It's like, I had never heard about that. So that was interesting to stumble across. Um, he... It, it was just interesting. The, the paper was, I found was very delicate. It's the paper is very thin. You could where he wrote and he wrote a lot of handwritten revisions. The ink bleeds onto the other side of the page. So if you turn the manuscript, you can see <laughs> you can see the the ink on the uh, other side of the page. Um, quite a few of Fleming's manuscripts are there. 
this time I decided just the first time I went, I did a very superficial look at about three or four. This time I decided I was just going to do Casino Royale and just really look at the whole thing as, as, as closely as I could. Um, uh, David Lee, who isn't here, you know, a frequent guest on this prod- podcast, but isn't here today. I sent him some photos and he helped me out because um, at the very end of the chapter where Bond is getting tortured by Lashif, he had another line and he crossed that out. And like, I was trying to make it out. I had my eyeball as close to the page as I could without <laughs> touching, touching the page. I couldn't quite make it out. I sent David a photo and he was able to make it out. Um, so the way it ends in the, in the book, it's just Lashif's line, say goodbye to it, Bond. And then there was another line, he bent over, but Fleming thought better. It's like, and I agree. I think, I think just having that line in the chapters is, is perfect. Uh, also in the, um, in the uh, card game chapter, it was a handwritten insert about having a whisper of hate, whisper of love, a whisper of hate. Um, so, you know, that of course ended up being a chapter title and, and of course figured into the design of the original, you know, the first edition cover. It was also interesting. None of the chapters had, had, uh, chapter titles. They were just chapter one, chapter two, etc. Um, apparently some of the changes were so extensive. He had to just retype. So when you look at it, at this manuscript, it's, pages one through 40. And then there's 40 a 40 B 40 C. And then like, he's doing a handwritten insert for 40 C and he's like writing it on the back of of 40 B. Um, anyway, it's, it's just very interesting. Interesting. It gives you an idea of the effort, you know, Fleming did make. And as I said earlier, you know, some people act as if he just kind of, you know, I mean, yes, he, he wanted to get out of, out of London for, for the winter, but, um, and he enjoyed himself in Jamaica, but yes, he was still working very hard on these novels. And you can tell looking at the manuscript. So not that we needed much more evidence, but it does dispel the myth that he just knocked it out at seven weeks, mailed it to his publisher and called it a day, right? Like Sebastian Falks and IFP were kind of alluding to, which was false. Yes, absolutely. Although maybe Sebastian Falks did that. Um, I mean, yeah, that's Bill, I think it's also true that any writer that knocks something out in seven weeks is also has thought about it a long time. It's not just the physical writing. And I totally agree with that, the amendments. Fleming, of course, wrote the main draft in Jamaica, but came back and often rewrote and edited in his Victoria Square flat, uh, 16 Victoria right. Square. And uh, luckily, I was uh, lucky enough to go to his garret, the loft in which he wrote in, which has a hand-painted mural, which remained unchanged from his days writing there. And uh, it, it's an amazing place, uh, almost as amazing a place as Goldeneye, to see where he must have taken his pages, come back to rainy old London and written overlooking the, the best part of Belgravia. And it's a magical place. And uh, I was lucky enough to go there on Ian Fleming's centenary. And, um, uh, yeah, it sort of holds up. You can imagine a lot of Bond's adventures being finessed there. And I think that's fascinating what you said about the Casino Royal manuscript because you can see any book any creative project has a long way to go and also there was something they had that i took a look at it it was described as an author's copy of casino royale now what it was first of all it looked a little smaller than an actual 
book. Um, like this was something special that Kate made for him. Um, anyway, it had a plain hardback cover, just said Casino Royale. But inside there was this one page on very slick paper that, you know, of, of the hard of the uh, dust jacket, you know, the, the famous, you know, hearts, bleeding hearts, you know, whisper of love, whisper of hate inscription. And so then on the inside of that, uh, Fleming had this inscription said author's copy. And he talked about he had written it at Jamaica in, you know, the months of 1952. And it was published the following year. And he said, it's a work of something to the effect. It's a work of fiction, but that specifically the, um, the bomb thing where the two guys set off a bomb and they, you know, they think one's a fake, but they're both real and they both get killed. He said that was real. And he said it was based on, he also said that he, um, in this inscription, he said that he was doing it to work out. And I forget the exact phrasing, but essentially personal matters. He puts an asterisk by it. And then on the actual inside cover of it, there's the, there's another asterisk and about five or six lines, but these are all, crossed out again in that weird, he didn't like cross them out in straight lines. He, he like did a loop over, over like very tight. It's like Robert so, Muller redacting the report, right? He yeah. Didn't want anybody and, and, to see what was underneath there. And it was so hard to read the typewritten stuff <laughs> crossed out when, you know, it's like, I was not going to try to read his, his handwriting. His handwriting is a little hard to read anyway. And so trying to read it crossed out, I said, uh, I, I threw in. It's like I've 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 had enough trying for this. I mean, I can guess what it was, but probably um, just complaining that he was going to get married. I imagine. Right. That's, Which I still don't get. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't understand his mental state. Yeah. Yeah. So, and also this thing was not a first edition. It said uh, it said third impression uh, rather than third printing, and there was also something on a page before the novel proper started saying. Uh, also by the same author, Live and Let Die. So it was a 1954 printing, whatever this thing was. Again, I, it, it did not look like a regular book you would be able to buy. It was like something that Kate must have done just for him. And I assume there are other authors. But um, anyway, very interesting. And um, I know that a lot of Bond fans go there because the librarian told me that the Fleming manuscripts are very, um, are very popular. So, um, anyway, just something I thought I'd pass along. It's, it's been something I've been meaning to go to. My next mission is to get to the university of Iowa so I can look at Maybaum's papers. Uh, if I can get to Iowa, that's a two for one job for me because the producer of the man from uncle's papers are also there. So I can, you know, it's, it's a chance to look at both, but, I'll get, I'll, I need to try and get there. I'm thinking about next year, but we'll see. Do you know the capsule history, Bill, of why those manuscripts from Fleming are at Lilly Library? Yes. Lilly Library collects, it, it's not the main library at, at IU. It's a, it's a kind of specialty library. They go after rare editions and so forth. They've got a Gutenberg Bible, for example. And so what the library was after was actually Fleming's rare book collection, his collection of first edition books, a lot of them very famous books. Um, so they were after that and they got the manuscripts and some correspondence as kind of a, as kind of an, a bonus. And when I was there um, in 97, I read some of the correspondence um, 
The problem is between 97 and now, computerized things, and I was having trouble finding it, and it was going to take a while. I just didn't have the time. I, I was kind of wanting to go back to the correspondence. But when I was there in 97, for example, I read some letters from Fleming to Raymond Chandler and Chandler back to Fleming. Uh, I read a Fleming letter to Robert F. Kennedy. I read a Fleming letter to um, one of the Dulles brothers, whether it was John Foster or Alan, I forget. And I think I, I think it was Alan Dulles. He was the CIA director, or by then the former one. And and he sent a letter saying, oh, I don't get to movies very often, but I'm going to go try to see this from Russia with love. Um, so there's, you know, those letters are there somewhere as well, but exactly they've kind of changed the search system. So I'm not exactly sure where they're at, but they're there. And recently, a lot of his correspondence was collected anyway, right? In that um, first yes. Fleming's book. Uh, the Man with the Golden Typewriter, I think it was. So yes. I don't know how much of that got scooped up um, into that. That's possible, yeah. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to, um, when I was researching one of the articles for MI6 Confidential, um, I got to go to uh, Inflaming Publications and, and look through some of that correspondence. And it's um, it's it's a strange thing to kind of have that, you know, physically there and you're 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 leafing through things that um he's he's actually written um they were very lovely people um uh, albeit sort of um hovering over me <laughs> um right. making, making sure that i didn't uh didn't mess anything up um but yeah it's quite a at the time that this was prior to uh as, as james's to, to the release of um of the book uh, the collection of uh of the correspondence so it was quite a it's quite a um a special feeling to kind of be looking through these things. Um, and, uh, just to, just to hark back to what AJ was saying before, um, about, uh, where he, where he finished off those, um, in, in those, those manuscripts, um, AJ, we saw that on the, on the, on the Fleming walk, um, I believe. Um, and you pointed that out to me and it's interesting how there are these places that fans always go to, um, and they and they and they see these places as the um, um, you know Goldeneye particularly um, and Fleming's um, Fleming's residence, but they they there are there are many places in in London um, and elsewhere as well that have this connection where he where he did all of this um, fine tuning on on um, on his on his work that most people are completely unaware of. Absolutely, Ben. I mean. I think I think we've both been lucky enough to go on Thomas Cole's uh, artistic license renewed uh, website. He does an annual Ian Fleming walk, and um, some fascinating people are there. We've had um, uh, people studying uh, Fleming's history in Vermont with Ivor Bryce. We've had people who knew who lived in Fleming's house, the one he was born in. And there's a great uh, Tom Cole does a great job, and we, there are some interesting nooks and crannies in Fleming's stockbroking career with Cullen Co. Uh, in the city of London, and there's a whole bunch of un, un, unsung places. Um, I mean, there's so much history in James Bond, and I think uh, Bill, Bill, you did some other research, didn't you, Lee, about the man from Uncle at the Lily Library, didn't you? Well, I was just going to mention that um, we'll, we'll get into it in a later segment, but uh, yeah, there's 
Actually, it wasn't at the Lilly Library. I got someone showed me they made photocopies of the Fleming documents. There were Western uh, Western Union telegram blanks um, that Fleming wrote on, and they were um, they were a combination of things. They were like character traits for Napoleon Solo, the possibilities for other characters, and there were also some springboards, uh, which are like essentially one line things, you know, as, as, you know, could be the basis of a, a, of an episode. And so we're going to get into this later, but, um, one of the things in the telegram blanks was, and it's very short. It's like Nürburgring auto oh, right. or F1, something okay. like that. It's, it's very short. He was essentially, but, but when he was working on the, when he was involved with the man for uncle, he was still flogging. That's right. The death Third on wheels. Yeah, I think I think I've seen that. John Heitland wrote that great book on the, the Man from Uncle, and I think he's got captured a lot of that stuff. It's fantastic. Now, today, in, in, in Britain at least, there's been a huge amount of sport going on with, uh, yes. firstly, the, uh, the men's final at Wimbledon. There's some bond connections there. The World Cup cricket final, there's minor bond connections there. And most importantly, bond-wise, there's the uh, British Formula One Grand Prix, the 1,007th Grand Prix. Right. So they've celebrated it. Formula One and James Bond have got together. There's some James Bond cars from Bond in Motion at uh, various Grand Prix sites. And today, um, the Red Bull team, sponsored by Aston Martin, had their two principal drivers, um, uh, Max Verstappen, I believe you pronounce his name, and um, uh, dressed in, uh, and Pierre Gasly, dressed in kind of amusing Formula One dinner jacket leathers. Daniel Craig visited Silverstone today to see the shenanigans going on. And you had these Aston Martin 007 branded Red Bull uh, Formula One cars, which were very cool. And um, it kind of shows that there's a, there's a huge motoring connection, which started, as Bill said, with uh, Fleming's fascination with cars and murder and wheels. Um, and that was fun and interesting to see. Of course, Fleming um, was a huge car nut and um, famously visited car races. The Merge on Wheels, which was then became a chapter in the 2015 continuation Bond Trigger Mortis by uh, Anthony Horowitz, sort of all, all about this this unused idea of a, of a murderous Formula One chase in the Nürburgring. Um, then feeling Sterling, then featuring Sterling Moss in the original draft, but that was changed. And Fleming was a fan and knew Sterling Moss and knew about the car racing world. Um, a good friend of his, Amherst Villas, designed the supercharger that was in Bond's Bentley. And um, he also painted Ian Fleming's only colour portrait and has a fascinating history called Amherst Villas, The Man Who Supercharged Bond, written by Paul Kenny in 2009, for people who want to find out about that. And, of course, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was based on a car called Chitty Bang Bang, a customised Mercedes and first ran in the 20s at Brooklyn's car race and 
that's where Fleming was inspired to uh, get involved in a car race adventure and devised Chitty Bang Chitty Chitty Bang Bang um, in 1964. Also, real quick, as a sidebar, um, so going back to those Fleming 11 uh, telegram blanks, so two ideas from those those telegram blanks finally saw the light of day in 2015. One was that chapter in Trigger Mortis that AJ just described, and also um, in the 2015 Man from Uncle movie, a Napoleon solo trait, which was never in the TV, original TV show, which was that uh, Napoleon solo liked to cook. The phrase was, he kept a rather coppery kitchen. And so in the movie, Henry Cavill cooks a meal for Alicia Vikander, and he's wearing a chef's apron. Oh, that's very cool. And it, I mean, it's very quick. It's But that's it's like only – yeah, it's, it's, it's a very quick you know, thing, but it's like – That's yeah, very for those cool. Of who are, you know, I noticed it. And uh, obviously we had the um, – the, uh, mention of a particular bond villain um in the man from uncle film uh as well count lippy yeah i think think they spelled it with an i instead of an e at the end but yes that that's that's fortuitous because the count lippy uh death scene in thunderball 1965 was filmed at the grand prix track at silverstone where bond was today with by bob simmons uh, you know famously uh, uh, crashed his car with high explosive and Cubby thought that uh, Bob Simmons had died, the stuntman, and he appeared and wondered what everyone was worried about. So that's that's a nice linkage to uh, a full circular thing about um, the scenes. That was shot, I believe, on the 21st of June, 1965. So, And the difference between 1965 and 2019 was... In 1965, they used a real Aston Martin DB5. Right. As opposed to the counterfeit Aston Martin DB5, which masquerading as a DB5, it's a BMW. Also, in a footnote about the race today, today as we record this, one of those Aston Martin F1 cars got rear-ended and went into the sand (laughs) trap. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately. The the headlines write themselves, don't they? The point. Oh, I was just being a real anal completist and mentioning the, the Grand Prix sequences in uh, the John Gardner book for special service in 1982, where James Bond's Saab 900 Turbo takes on a GT350 Shelby Ford Mustang in, in a kind of made-up made up <laughs> Grand Prix track in the middle of uh, Texas. It's a fun little footnote, but it's a fun sequence that could easily make a James Bond film, actually. Um, the... It's a, it's, a, it's a lovely little sequence, isn't it? Yeah, I, I really enjoy reading yeah. that. Um, but and then the Silver Beast is always full of. Uh, it's one of the one of those um, uh, times where you've you've got the bleed over from uh, novelizations into the actual films. Where um, for uh, I, I think um, oh, help me out here. Um, the, the the BMW 750iL uh, was basically kind of like copying the silver beast in many of its gadgets much of its gadgetry i don't think i don't think i don't think we would say copying would we ben we'd say mutually inspired (laughs) referencing Uh, (laughs) inspired by inspired by speaking of speaking of inspired by cars ben i mean you you found that fleming may have been inspired by a certain aston martin that wasn't the db5 right yeah um and i i have to say uh, this, I've, I've taken a lot of credit for this, but this was actually sort of um, initially um, 
unearthed uh, by uh, another um, MI6 forum member who we uh, who we, we, we've spoken to before, um, Jamie McKenzie Smith, who who, put, who sort of like flagged this for me. Um, but then I kind of did the, the routing around for it. Um, what happened was um, that there was a DB2 mark, uh, DB24 Mark One um, that was unearthed, uh, you know, barn find essentially. Um, and as the, the people who purchased this started looking at it, they realized that there was a lot of uh, modifications that had been done to this, um, such as there was a... Um, a speed pilot that had been installed in it, um, a two-way radio, concealed compartments for tools, reinforced bumpers, that kind of thing, um, and and they sort of thought, well, could this have could this have been some kind of inspiration for for Bond's um, what was con- what was called in the novel Goldfinger the the, the Mark III, uh, which is slightly erroneously named, um, and it turned out that this. Uh, this car was owned by uh, a man named uh, Philip Ingwin Cunliffe Lister, uh, DSO, um, who, who was a pilot um, in the Second World War. And his father um, was uh, Lord Swinton. Now, Lord Swinton was head of MI5 during the Second World War and also head of a thing called the Security Executive, uh, a good friend of Churchill's. Um, and so Fleming would have almost certainly had uh, known Lord Swinton um, in, in his position as, uh, you know, deputy to um, head of naval intelligence. Um, and additionally, um, Fleming, Fleming owned a property um, on, on the coast and one of uh, – in, in Kent and one of the neighbouring houses – uh, which was used as the inspiration for Drax's residence in the novel uh, Moonraker. Um, this this was somewhere where Philip Cunliffe Lister used to visit in his um, in his car. So uh, it's it's almost certain that Fleming would have come across this car, and as a car enthusiast, uh, would have would have been interested in it. Um, so it's it's almost certain. I mean, you know, as I said. Uh, before I was I was researching some of the letters um, at uh, in Fleming Publications uh, to try to kind of um, get the veracity of this of this story. But um, after after publication, there was a a, a picture that we we unearthed of uh, Fleming's car and the DB two Mark two four at a pub parked side by side. Mm. So we right. we eventually did discover that yes, they definitely had. Um, come across one another, so it's it's almost certain that this car, uh, which was nicknamed Gloria, um, was the inspiration for the DB3 Aston Martin um, Goldfinger in um, in Goldfinger. Yeah, and would what, have- what's amazing about that story, Ben, is like how few photographs were taken back in the day to find one that there was a smoking gun, right? For those two cars to be next to each other, it was it was it's amazing. In, yeah, it was incredibly, um, and that that actually came prior, to, as I said, um, by post publication. Somebody said, "Oh, I've," um, I think somebody read read that article and they said, "Oh, I have a picture of this," and and they sent it in, and so those two cars side by side was 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 really the as you say the smoking gun on that um but 
I collated a huge amount of, uh, of information to and research to, 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 to find out whether this was strictly speaking true. Um, but they, the, these, these two guys had, um, the father and son who'd purchased this car had done a beautiful restoration job on it. It was an utterly gorgeous car. Um, and being in that vehicle, it's, it's hard to imagine that this wasn't an inspiration because of all of the, you know, the, 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 the sliding, compartments full of tools uh, i can i can imagine fleming thinking oh well a gun could easily go in there um and you know ex- extrapolating from that um you know how how the uh, how the the film version of that that car would have um you know uh, expanded upon those those modifications doesn't fit into the established history though does it ben apparently not <laughs> well that's a fascinating piece of detective work uh, as a kind of final caveat when matthew field and i were researching our book some kind of hero we heard that the the, the pre-titled sequence of uh, specter they wanted some big event some big kind of grand event to drop bond into and one of the initial ideas they looked at was a formula one sequence but they found it too expensive and they couldn't do it. So that was one of the, uh, the kind of grand situation James Bond was going to be in a carnival or a Formula One thing. I'm sure that's an idea that a Bond film or a Bond novel yeah. would return um, to a kind of Formula One sequence. Also, uh, and something Bond. that maybe not a lot of people know is that um, Donald Healy, uh, who, um, as everyone probably knows from Austin Healy 3000s, uh, rather amazing cars, um, uh, Fleming, at 23 years old, when he was still, um, you know, a, a, a junior um, reporter for Reuters, um, he was actually a Healy's navigator uh, for the, the 1932 Munich International Alpine Trial. Um, so he went to report on on this uh, on this race, and he was actually Healy's navigator for for that part of it. So that's uh, it's quite an interesting connection. Not, I don't think that many people know that. You did that without Michael Caine accent. Which, no, not um, a lot of people. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's the wealth of my Bond's car knowledge exhausted. Well, just real quick, you know, the Ian Fleming Foundation has a number of Bond vehicles that they have acquired over the years. And about 10 years ago or so, they got one of the uh, Mercury Cougars from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. My understanding is there were two. They got one of them. And so I was there and I had a chance. They said, oh, yeah, they were letting people who were there do a test drive. And I'm here to tell you, cars made 50 years ago are vastly inferior to what we drive today. And so if you've ever seen an old movie where someone's on the steering wheel and there's all this give, they're moving the steering wheel constantly. There's a reason for that. Because the steering wasn't so precise. They, they really did go like that. And it, and it didn't have power brakes. And I, I had to press really hard to get, get the thing to stop. And, um, you know, I was happy to have the test drive, but I'm, uh, I'll be happy to never have one. It's just something to keep in mind. 
Bill, that Mercury Cougar was discovered by Anders Fraser from Sweden Love in Sweden, and he brought it to the intention of the Ian Fleming Foundation. And it now resides in Bond in Motion in London. And I was lucky enough to be there earlier this year where George Lazenby was reunited with it. Uh, he just popped in to see it, and he, he was lovingly remembering the adventures he's had in it. By, by um, and it was just an amusing... Uh, un- <laughs> <laughs> well, fill in, fill in the gaps. Uh, but it was just fun to see his his mind peppery with enthusiasm all those years ago about it. So, yeah, that Mercury Cougar is fantastic. I think there was like a summer car, for lack of a better term, for like the Portugal sequences and a winter car um, for the Switzerland sequences. Um, I think that's how the, the two cars break out. Classically winterized, as in... Uh... Living daylights. Thank you, AJ. I had a, I had a, I had a brain freeze there for a moment. Yeah, a brain freeze. We, we all get them. We all get them. Well, just a point to circle back to, to the original conversation that we were having. It was something I was thinking of, but couldn't really fit it in. I really think there's value here in this type of archival research that is going on, because I think when we remember creators, creative individuals, we have a very selective memory. And I think because Ian Fleming's works are not considered to be works of art, there's this idea that they came easy, that they just sort of flowed out that there was no editing and no thought put into it. And there's a lot of the reclaiming of labor um, when it comes to Ian Fleming, the thoughts he put in, the writing that he put in. I think there's value in that. And as I was thinking about that, I was linking it to the way that James Bond has transformed. And then thinking about the adaptation of Casino Royale in 2006, where Daniel Craig's Bond puts in a lot of labor in order to try to be this hero. And I think there's almost like this absence of physical labor that's just sort of devoid in many of of the Bond films leading up to that. So I feel like we're in a moment of just sort of reclaiming and, and, and at least seeing the value of the labor that gets put in. Like, it's okay that there's hard work you know, that, that goes into making these char- this, this character successful. And I think also there's a benefit to seeing original documents, seeing the original manuscript, seeing original, um, when it becomes available, yeah. scripts. Because when you do interviews, people don't necessarily remember all the details exactly like it happened. People misremember things, um, things like that. And seeing it actually down in, in, uh, in black and white is very helpful. I've mentioned this in passing uh, film finances did that completion bond that, you know, for, for Dr. No. And so they published this limited edition book and they, and the, the key value in that book is they reproduced a lot of their documents related to that film. And then, you know, for example, there's a list of various, production mishaps like you know I, I mentioned Jack Lord was was late getting there on the for the first day and is there's a list of all sorts of things like that and just seeing that and then seeing the bit about how a big chunk of Terence Young's salary was impounded until film finances money back um, and a letter where 
Terrence Young is complaining about it and just all this great stuff. I mean, I, I, I lapped it up. It was, it was just great stuff to read. And like I said, when you see it in, you know, in documents and it's not, you know, it's not somebody's, you know, recalling it. It's like what's actually written down. That's, that's very interesting. And it's like in a paper form, there's something in a digital culture that we live in. I always talk to my students about class and classism and how we don't actually understand how much wealth there is in the world because we no longer pay for stuff with like tangible cash. So we don't think about how much we're spending and we don't actually have any idea what a billion dollars or $10 billion might be when people accrue that. And so there is something to be said about like reading something in a paper form with actual like typewriter ink or or just handwritten notes. There's something about it that almost makes it seem more real. And I don't know, There's, the, I just love that process of unearthing that type of stuff, especially in our digital culture. Yeah, I wonder if in 50 years time, Bond fans will um, go to Covent Garden to find the original Predemanger that Purvis and Wade wrote the jinx draft in. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think the original archive material also evidentially is great because it's of the time. It's contemporaneous. When people look back, they often fit the facts according to a kind of false memory, not deliberately, just how they are. But the underlying, I believe, uh, I totally agree with Bill about Charles Drazen's book, A Bond for Bond, which is the film finances story of the completion bond of Dr. No, with the original documents sort of pictured and illustrated. It's really good. And I agree with Lisa as uh, academic or historical, so, or, or even legal studies, the underlying paperwork, the evidential material, contemporary ed- evidential material. So things written out at the time, the notes at the time, often are usually very reliable. Uh, and, you know, recollections uh, are useful, but the, com- the combination of both is really useful. Yeah, to your point, um, AJ, I remember when there was a couple of lawsuits kicking around a few years ago. One was the Monty Norman thing, and the other one was um, the From Russia With Love trademark case. And in there, you know, MGM and Eon had to give testimony about how successful certain things were. And it was great to have um, the raw, raw access to that kind of information, which is yeah. often buffed and... Um, you know the, the 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 bits that aren't good get whitewashed out of the Eon and MGM history, but there they are laid bare in in testimony, um, and that's about the only place you're going to get a true accounting of of what <laughs> happened is when they're under oath in a courtroom. Um, apart from that, they, they, apart from that, we get the version they want us to hear, right? So yeah, but you know it's our job to uncover that, and also we're, we're we are James Bond fans. We're not trying to undo the myth. Mythology. And by the way, a lot of information is out there. If you look for it, as Bill said, you know, there's manuscripts, there's archives, there's Lisa, you know, has uncovered. There are great corporate records that is, exist that no one's ever touched. I mean, I've seen a lot of material that no one's ever seen before, and it's out there for the public. you just got to look yeah. for it and pay for it as well. You know, that's another thing. We can't get it all free from Wikipedia. There needs to be people who go out there and unearth uh, archives and material, you know, but I'm sure it will all come. I'm a big Beatles fan, and there's a writer called Mark Lewis on who's written you know a thousand page but part one part one of part three biography of the beatles and he really goes to town on research i think bond can withstand that treatment in the future too also i would i would just say i don't think any of this undoes the myth if anything it adds to it um, you know it, a lot has been written for whatever reason about the difficulties of, of from russia with love with the you know the helicopter crash that almost mm. killed terrence 
Armstrong and all this, you know, uh, Pedro Armendariz, you know, committing suicide, you know, having to complete his in a hurry, and then he goes off commits suicide. So that's all been written up. But, you know, Dr. No was apparently at least as chaotic production, but for whatever reason, yeah. never got written up that way. And to me, it's, it, you know, it, it, it just adds to the achievement of the film that all this stuff got overcome. I agree. Um, I, I think all films actually have all, all sorts of minor and major disasters because it's a huge undertaking. I totally agree. Uh, when you look at From Usher With Love and Doctor Know, all the finance problems, the casting problems, um, the, the millions of screenwriters involved in those pictures, and now no one really talks about that. They had at least three credited writers, at least you know five or six uncredited writers. So I think the journey, now those films are acknowledged classics, or, or the pain of birth has been forgotten. But I agree. Um, it's not undoing the Bond mythology. It's, it's uh, if you're if you're the corporate entity, you don't deliberately put that out there. It's for people to find out. And I think one of the consequences of misremembering or not acknowledging this history is when you get to a film like Bond Twenty Five, where there are similar bumps in the road, whether it's creative differences, issues happening on set, multiple writers. And now it's made as if this is the only time there has ever been any sort of creative or production issues on a Bond film. It, it, I, it's almost like we misremember in order to sort of tear down this new Bond film or to question it when this has been the history of the Bond series. And it's the history of most films that are made. Nothing is smooth from start to finish. So I think that there is a consequence of not remembering or not talking about, say, the background of Dr. No in these other films. I absolutely agree, Lisa. And also the Phoebe Waller-Bridge is the, the second credited female writer on a Bond film. Of course, there have been many other female writers who were not credited in previous Bond films. But I think it's great to sort of look at that history and say, you know, there's been a strong involvement in the creative levels of female creatives in the Bond movies. And I think, Bond 20, as you said, Bond 25 serves as a reminder of what has gone in past and i was going to say even with scripts even if it's a script you know just before filming there's often significant differences i saw this uh the, the copy i have of the only live twice script was written in like was dated like mid-june of 66 they began filming on july 4th of 66 but at that point they still didn't have the um the helicopter or the giant magnet uh i think what happened was that the led them down a led the villains down yeah, a, yeah. Uh, an alley and then these walls smashed them <laughs> into smithers um so so the so that big thing with the you know giant magnet with the helicopter that's something that came up you know sometime <laughs> sometime after mid-june and that's you know i mean just a few weeks before they started filming that's that shows you how in flux things can be or as the Daily Express, as the Daily Express would write, you won't believe what happens to this car. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think news media has changed, of course, now compared to then. So I think that's also the terrain of news gathering is completely different now for all sorts of reasons. So yeah, we live in in a strange times. Well, I think it's a take your pick from ignorance, short term memory, or just bad journalism. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or lack of research. You know. <laughs> so speaking of which <laughs> shall we start talking shall we start talking about Bond twenty five? Um Let's let's give the warning. So if you are spoiler adverse, time to 
spoilers, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, by, and by spoilers, let's couch that with things that have been all over the press and media this week, uh, <laughs> which you must be li- living in a cave not to have seen, and or heard on this podcast 10 episodes ago. So... Oh, very good, very good. So, AJ, do you want to kick it off? Because, um, you're a man on location. Yeah, well, I was lucky. I was lucky enough to bump into James Bond himself on location in Westminster a few days ago. A few, well, a couple of Sundays ago, when they were shooting the uh, Aston Martin's approach to the Ministry of Defence building, um, there was a lot of activity. They did a lot of other stuff in London that day, Horse Guards Parade. It seems they're using the original MOD building that's seen briefly in four eyes only as an establishing shot. Bond has visited the MOD Ministry of Defence in Tomorrow Never Dies, but that was duplicated in Somerset House somewhere away and there was huge drone shots taken from the you know above the skyline coming down and daniel craig was there um with makeup scars on him there was his stunt man and stand-in and it's all hugely exciting and uh, although from what i could see not much happened there was kerry for kanaga with his uh, rather jaunty cap and the di- director of photography barbara rockley walked by unnoticed on her mobile phone and all in all it was the public it was it was shot actually round the corner from scenes they used in skyfall with the uh, embankment doubling for temple tube station so it's all familiar it was opposite the corinthia hotel which bond uses has used for the skyfall press conference and a couple of other issues they've had there so yeah it was exciting then they shot uh, on friday at hammersmith bridge with uh, um uh, Tanner, um, Rory Kinnear and uh, Ray Fiennes and that, that again that's a major very picturesque bridge slightly to the west of West, slightly to the west of Westminster and um, it's a, again a new new location for James Bond and um, it's interesting how Bond sort of manages to shut down London at the busiest times but not really affect much and of course then the papers are full of it and uh, there have been another scene shot in South London, Q's flat has been used you know maybe we'll meet Q's cats he looks after um, and that featured Naomi Harris those sequences so yeah um, but London is back in as a central location for Bond 25 and um, it's always fun to bump into part of its filming so as our two resident Americans although I have an asterisk on me Lisa and Bill um, how much do you think you and also fellow Americans like get at do you get a kick out of seeing Bond in his hometown or is it just like any other location? Because to Brits, uh, it, it probably means something else, I imagine. For me, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, I expect some degree of, of, of London sequences, but in the last few, it's clearly increased. Mm-hmm. And in fact, David Lee kind of asked on Twitter this week about is there some law that they have to have all these London sequences? And somebody replied that maybe Eon has some kind of agreement with some sort of London tourist agency. I'm, I didn't pay that close attention to it. So I, um, but that there is some kind of agreement in, in place. Um, Uh, For me, 
I'm I'm not really sure how I feel about it. I know that in the last few films there has been um, such a highlight and a focus, um, not only on scenes in London but also attacks on the heartland. Uh, so for me, these images um, are reflective of a broader storyline. Um, as for just sort of basic sequences taking place, it makes sense to me that that he would go into an office and that that office would be located in sort of the, the central location. But beyond that, I don't have that same sort of nostalgic connection to it. As someone who lives in Oklahoma but is from Canada, I don't have that same right like it doesn't it doesn't really move me in ways that it might move local audiences and i think that's something to be considered even when we talk about the reception of these films it means different things to different people that's the polysemic nature of a film it just depends on your experiences and how they're being shaped by what's around you now if you want to go into Canada and shoot some scenes, I would be all for it. And I would probably have like an emotional connection to seeing my homeland being represented, you know, in a Bond film. But, but yeah. Yeah. To your point, Lisa, um, you know, when, um, when I saw, when we were at the Skyfall premiere, because I growing up as a kid, we spent every summer in Scotland, um, with my mom's family in the Highlands when that, sh you know, the establishing shot of the DB five going through the moors kicks in every single time the hairs on the back, the back of my neck go up mm -hmm. just because it has that emotional connection. Um, so yeah, that's what I was curious about. Does, 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 does London have a cachet on the big screen? Um, anymore considering it's been as it's been over used a lot in action movies over the recent as years. a as a former londoner uh only just um i i have to say that it, it it it's kind of interesting when you you know you live there and you're walking through a lot of these these places these locations it does have a certain resonance um there's a certain thing that i find um particularly inspector where they started to change the landscape of, of of it where it became unreal so you know uh, seize tower you know the the um the joint uh, intelligence tower um the destruction of the mi6 building that's a bit weird when you then go across the bridge and you see the building still there it's kind of like well now we're now we're definitely saying that this is in another universe um, but one of the first gigs that I had for you for, for MI6, uh, I think for the magazine, if I'm no, maybe, maybe it was for, for, for the website, uh, was writing James Bond's London. Um, and I haven't updated that in a long time. But what's interesting about that is I really had to, you know, do some research and pull out some, some stops to find, you know, the, the, the locations that, the that Bond actually had been in for for the films and for the, for the novels, uh, and now uh, if I was to, to update that, it, it would just be huge. Um, there are so many uh, locations now, so much of, of of the time that is spent in the capital um, that it's that's really become. Uh, we're seeing so much of Bond uh, at home, and considering that his remit is uh, outside of London. Uh, it seems a bit strange. I think what's interesting 
with the current films is is that using London as London. In previous films, they've used London to substitute for foreign locations a lot of the time, Germany and uh, you know uh, Russia. And I think now one of the reasons we're seeing a lot more of London generally is it's become much easier to film in London. The local authorities are cognizant of the value film productions can have in London. So across the board, there's a London Film Commission as someone who's involved in production. That's the reason why you also get tax credit credits under the DCMS scheme. So that's the reason why. But generally, it's become just much easier to film in London. And logistically, Bond films are always trying to you know, get extra bang for the buck. If they can double Cuba in Hackney or St. Petersburg in the Strand, they tend to do it. And I guess for me, my question is flipping the question back to the non-American or US-bound uh, people on the, the panel. How do you feel about all of this time, attention, and focus, and not just using local resources to represent other places, but this distinct, concentrated focus. What do you see or sense that's going on? Is this a reflection of Brexit, for instance, and having, you know, much more of an emphasis on, on the local and the local politics and the chaos? What do you think is going on that's causing, beyond, say, economics, is there something else going on that's causing this this centralized focus uh that's an interesting I, I think that's an interesting question um i think what we saw um really with this this was sort of starting with um with skyfall wasn't it uh this, yeah. this sort of um and that was sort of prior to 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 kind of the the the, the shift in the political landscape um I think there was, you know, what in in sort of uh, 2012, uh, we had we had the jubilee, we had the, the Olympics, so there was this sort of uh, return to a kind of a, a nationalism with with Bond. So it sort of made sense uh, in in 2012 to kind of highlight uh, London and, and Bond's Britishness. Um, because of because it, it felt like that that was sort of the zeitgeist you know we had the jubilee we had the olympics there was there seemed to be a lot of that uh that that nationalistic feeling that was that was you know you you don't have to walk around london and there were uh, union flags sort of laced everywhere uh bunting was you know like you know if you if you started a bunting company in 2012 you were you were you're in good place um but I think what we've got now is a sort of a hangover of of, of that nationalism, um, and perhaps uh, for, for for subsequent films uh, for uh, for Spectre and and for for, for this film, um, yeah, perhaps it is tying into this uh, to the to the kind of the, the Brexit feel. Um, I I I for one. Sort of feel that the whole idea for for Bond is is that it, it it should be international. It should feel like we're 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 stepping outside of 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 our of our you know this um this septed isle and and trying to and trying to sort of be a little bit more international and be a bit more embracing of 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 everything. Um, it it almost feels like a little bit like it's it's kind of stepping in and and becoming a little bit more um reclusive 
Yeah. I think 2005, Daniel Craig was cast as James Bond. Nobody knew what Brexit meant. In 2020, when he does his last film, nobody knows what Brexit means. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an interesting point, Lisa. I I bumped into Boris Johnson last week by sheer chance. And he's probably going to be our next prime minister. And he's the chief, one of the chief pro-Brexiteers. And it's interesting, Boris Johnson's connection with Ian Fleming was this. His ex-father-in-law, a man called Charles Wheeler, who was the BBC correspondent to Washington, served under Ian Fleming in 30 AU. And I spoke to Boris Johnson about this, and I think he knew about it. And And then I reminded him that, you know, Brexit isn't a very good idea, at least from my point of view. But he went away, you know, it was good natured. We were in a Weatherspoons pub which for anyone outside England is a chain run by a very arch pro-Bexiteer. So he was having a, uh, a photo called pulling pints of English beer and things like that. Uh, I was there drinking coffee, waiting for a client. Uh, I, had no int- I had no knowledge he was going to be there, but that brings us full Boris Bond Brexit circle. <laughs> <laughs> Some, somebody put actually a caption on that photo of Boris and the Weatherspoons guy on Twitter saying, it's, this is the fast show Bond villain. <laughs> quite, quite funny. Um, so speaking of tabloid coverage of Bond, this week's been very busy for um, SEO writers, as we've now discovered that this, the tabloids oh, actually this, call them. This week, is, this week has been. Yeah, you'll never believe what this week has done for SEO writers. <laughs> <laughs> this week, this week was the first time I saw SEO writer as a title on a newspaper article. Yeah, so for those listeners who aren't, you know, um, deep into how the inner workings of uh, search and the web works, SEO search engine optimization, which means that not you're no longer a journalist at the tabloids. You're deliberately writing stories engineered to do well in search results, <laughs> which I think says everything about the quality of the content huh. they're putting out. Well, this is this has long been. Uh, you know, so I've, I've, I've worked in social media uh, before um, and one of, it used to, so they used to always get this kind of um, balance between whether you're putting out good content or or how this content is going to be um, discovered. And so SEO has always been a, an important aspect of that, you know, just making it discoverable, really, uh, making sure that people are, people are reading what you're putting out there. Um, but when it, when SEO starts to take over the content, um, and it, it becomes more important than the, the, the actual story that you're putting out, then that's, that's where it becomes problematic. Um, and you know, there was always this battle between short form and long form copy, you know, what, what people were reading, were they going to read something kind of condensed and short and punchy or whether they actually going to want something journalistic and, and well-researched, um, I've always been of the opinion if you write something good and entertaining, people will read it, um, irrespective of, of the, the length of it. And I, and I, and I stand behind long copy, um, generally speaking. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's at the end of the day, um, that's what journalism really should be. But now what we're seeing is, is really this, uh, you know, keywords really. And, uh, and ultimately, everyone's borrowing everybody else's uh, story. Um, everybody's kind of 
trying to jump on the same sort of bandwagon and no, nothing really original is being being produced and it's just um just as, as i say it's the stuff that's gonna pop you up to the top of the, the listings which <laughs> you know doesn't doesn't give anybody anything really at the end of the day which which this week was um competition for the most either deliberately misleading headline or just bad editing about how bond 25 really have a different 007 and chest thumping don't forget that <laughs> yes yes so who wants to tackle the different 007 angle first because there's been a lot of uh, misrepresentation of what that might mean in the media coverage of it all right i'll i'll have a go um we we of course talked about this um uh, a few however many podcasts ago um, and there's been some fan speculation about this for quite some time. So the mail on Sunday, I believe, started this round with the story saying that Lashana Lynch, Lynch's character, is it Nomi? Uh, yeah. Nomi? Yeah, is, she'll be the new 007 in that you know Bond has left the service and she's got the 007 number. And now the headline was kind of... No, not kind of. It was misleading. It, it kind of made you think that she, you know, she, this that she might be Bond, which of course is not the case. And um, but anyway, a lot of fans over the past forty-eight hours, as we record this, have been just losing their, you know, what. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you try and and like I've tried to walk them through it, and they're still pissed off. So <laughs> I've given up trying to explain. And I did a post today noting that uh, I mentioned this on the podcast that, you know, Anthony Horowitz had essentially the same idea, just bond at the beginning of his career, because forever in a day opens with 007 getting killed. But it's Bond's predecessor with the number, not Bond. This creates the vacancy that is filled with Bond. And he then, you know, and gives him the choice of what number he wants. He says, I'll take 007. And it was kind of a way of letting it, you know, everyone know, Britain's enemies know that you might take one of us out, but you can't take us all out. Uh, words to that effect. And um, so in a way, assuming that this report in the mail on Sunday is correct, it's essentially the same concept, except it's Bond at the end of his career. He's left the service. And so now his, his, his old number has been given to somebody else. And I made the point that, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, the, the number is kind of MI6s to give. And, you know, it's not like a sports team where they retire right. a number of outstanding players. It's not, like, <laughs> oh, Bond's left. We have to retire the 007 number. Um, you know, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, he it, goes to the Hall of Fame and then you can't buy a shirt with his name on anymore. We, we, it was episode eight. I think we kicked this around. When they announced that the official synopsis that Bond had retired, we explored the idea of, well, there's obvious casting choices there that could mean that somebody else is stepping into the 007 number. Um, right. And that was back yeah. in April. So, Yay. I mean, Bill, that was a good catch. And they, they did that before as well. There was Bill Fairbanks in The Man with the Golden Gun, yes. who was 002 then. And then in the pre-title sequence of The Living Daylights, there were 002 and 004 with um, you know, 007 uh, attacking the Rock of Gibraltar. So it's, there's a precedent there for eagle-eyed Bond watchers. But I think most people have seen a female 00 in the Thunderball and also the world is not enough. We've seen another female double. So I think those people, those reactionary fans that 
have problems with it. I, I don't think we should give them the oxygen of publicity. Most sensible people, except in 2020, where we're going with this. If it's true, I think it's a great idea because it plays with the notions of you know what a double O is. And of course, the double O has always been a code number. So as long as James Bond, of course, that character, I think that's the confusion there. That's one thing. I think it shortchanges people just to merely change specifics of a, of a character, want to create a fresh new character, which they're doing with Nomi, it seems. Um, Lisa, can I ask you, um, we, we've discussed the, the notion of Money Penny's um, kind of redemptive arc uh, mm-hmm. before, um, or, lack, or of. lack of, and, and, and the fact that they never really addressed it. Do, how would you feel if they gave Money Penny the, the, the double O number? Do you feel that that would be a, a fitting kind of um, redempt, redemption for, if you want to, for, for want of a better word, um, for her character? Wow. Um, that I don't know. For me, my issue with the Money Penny narrative is the fact that. She made a mistake. Bond makes a whole bunch of mistakes, but there was never a path for her to really reclaim her identity. And it always felt like Bond was telling her, the field's not for everyone. In other words, the field's not for you. The field's not for you. And go take a secretarial role. Um, and it none of that ever felt right to me. Um, I don't know if we can take Money Penny out of her current role and make her a double O agent if we're, if we're trying to sort of maintain just sort of the basic structure of Bond's supportive group. Um, and I, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, I would love for her to be sort of like a bodyguard type protector for M. I think something like that, if you want to give her a code number, that would be lovely. Give her her own license to kill. Um, but when I think about this casting and this double O, and this is something I posted on Twitter today. I'm less, I think there's two issues. I think you have a casting issue, which taps into a long standing conversation that we're having always on social media about who's going to be Bond and who's going to play Bond and leading up to the casting of Daniel Craig, who could it be? And would it be a woman or would it be a, a, a man? And really in people's popular imagination, it was, would it be a white woman or a black man? And we can talk about Gillian Anderson and Idris Elba uh, throwing their hats into the ring and having this conversation. But each of these people is one different from sort of the basic status quo um, of, of this heroic archetype. So I think some of the reaction that we're having to this, this potential here is the fact that it is a black woman, um, who is, um, who steps even further away from the status quo. And I think it's a very interesting casting choice, casting decision. Um, I was thinking about this earlier and I mentioned this in the last podcast as well. This is going to be the first film that'll have uh, Money Penny and Felix Leiter both played by black actors. And then to have a double O agent who's also a black woman. Um, there is in in sort of the typical circle in MI6 going to be greater diversity probably in this one film than we've had in, you know, all of the films, you know, before beforehand. And I don't know if the reaction is to part of of that and how do we read and understand this character, which leads me into sort of my, my second component where I'm with her representation. It really is the same concern that I have for money, Penny. How will she be presented? Will she be given 
you know, a strong character arc? Is she going to have to give up this 007 number um, by the end of the film? Um, and, and what would be the circumstances under which this could happen? Will she have a heroic ending if she happens to give it up? Um, will there be this notion of negligence? And what then does that mean given the history of having... Um, you know, other women of color being presented as being um, less than capable. I think of Rosie Car Carver all the time um, and her right. representation. And so for me, I, the, the Naomi Harris and, and this new casting, um, there, there's something here to be said. And I think I'm just in a wait and see type of mode. But what I want people to do is to be aware that there's casting, but it really matters how the character is going to be represented. And I, for one, always want to have diversity, but I want to have not tokenism. I want to have strong characters with good character arcs. So I think the repercussions um, of, of the characterizations in this film, I think it's going to matter a lot. A couple quick things. You mentioned Rosie Carver. Um, on the Tom Mankiewicz commentary track on Live and Let Die, he says one of his biggest regrets was Rosie's demise that he just, I think he even said that he apologized to, to Gloria Hentry about it, that he just, he, he just, he didn't like how it turned out. It, it sometimes you, anyway, he, he said that was his biggest regret about the film. Just as an aside, I, I just thought it was interesting that you mentioned Rosie. Mm -hmm. so you have to wonder, assuming this story is true, Okay, does Lashana Lynch now move up the list as the possible sacrificial lamb? Um, and and if he is the sacrificial lamb, how is it presented? I mean, sometimes it, those scenes can be very um, very good. I I on a previous podcast I said Armitage as a as a sacrificial lamb whose death really mattered had some emotional impact. There are others where it's like they're checking a box. And um, so, again, if that if she's the sacrificial lamb, how is it presented? And obviously there's no way for me to know. Um, anyway, that's all for me. Well, speaking of checking boxes, Bill, this is what I want to ask you guys. Running up to the pre-production of this film, there was awful, you know, an awful lot of uh, chatter in the media about who could take over from Craig because, yeah, it wasn't for sure he was going to come back. Um, and, you know, that the whole diversity thing came up. And as you mentioned, Lisa, it was either going to be a black male actor or a female white actor. And that was about, you know, one step change is probably going to be enough for, to, for people's brains to cope with. Um, so I just wonder if somebody was in the writing room thinking, you know what, why don't we do both and use this angle of, you know, replacing 007 and that will get everybody off our backs. Well, I can't see that happening because they have to tee up the franchise in such a way that James Bond is 007 and Bond 26 right? Whoever that is, whether it's a, a reboot and a new actor or whatever. So how do they end if she is replacing 007? We talked about this in the previous podcast. How do you possibly get her out of that out of that position in a good way, right? Which isn't either demeaning or just, oh yeah, of course that's how they were going to do it. You know, this just, I can't see, I think they've dug themselves a hole here, basically, for how they treat the female character in that position the the only way i think they don't they haven't dug themselves in a hole is if they actually end the film with bond not going back to the service not not retaking the 007 number and it's like the end 
and here's the end of this Daniel Craig arc, and we're going to reboot again with Bond 26. I think that's the only way to avoid what you described. Um, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, I, 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 kind, of, I kind of agree in, in some ways, Bill, because my whole feeling was when, when they rebooted with uh, Casino Royale, I, I remember thinking this you know, back in 2006, I was kind of like, well, this is fantastic. But they've kind of put themselves into a situation when, when you recast, you know, you, uh, you, you, you're going to have to reboot every single time or uh, are you going to just fall into the same trap that you did previously, which is that, you know, another actor just takes over the role and, and it continues. And I, I think that in a sense, the only way that they can do it, and I, I, I'm agreeing with you really, is that they – they simply have to start again. Um, and one of the things that, I mean, I, I, I'm all about narrative arcs, and I think it's really important that you, you, follow, you follow a character uh, along their story and, and their growth. And I think even with one of the things I liked about Spectre to, to a degree was that it kind of tied up that narrative arc quite, quite nicely. And I agree that there is perhaps a little bit of extra legroom that you can have with this film that we might be able to tie off a, a, a couple of loose ends. But essentially I think Daniel Craig's arc is done. And because of that, you really essentially have to do whoever comes in again. I don't think they're taking over Daniel Craig's role. I think they're taking a new bond and I hate the whole, and I, I think I've, I've said it before, the dread pirate Roberts bond. I don't like the idea that, it's just an like it's just a number. It's just a name. I think um, uh, it, it was with Die Another Day that they um, that, that that they kind of floated the idea that, that that's that's what it was. That it was a code name and a code number. I don't like that, um, but I don't see how else they're going to to follow it up. Um, really, they've done the fake out before. Die Another Day you just mentioned. And it wouldn't be a podcast without mentioning Die Another Day. <laughs> so the film has so many things that we can latch on to. That little mini, that little micro moment where Judy Dench ushers the agent in and then it turns out to be Miranda Frost and not Bond, right? They're just, I think that's the germ of this idea. And as you say, Bill, I mean, and AJ, um, Anthony Horror, who Anthony yes. Horowitz was a few steps ahead of him on this one, wasn't he? Um, just with the opposite end of his career. But I, I, I think if this is true and, you know, nothing says it, we don't have any events to the contrary. Um, I think we'll look back on this in a few years as a, um, well, they might have had good intentions, but it didn't really come off well. That this was their, this was their attempt to say, well, James Bond could be played. That character, that archetype could be played by anybody. And then they kind of do it for a little bit and throw it away rather than stick to it. Well, I, I just yeah. feel like if if anybody can be so, has anyone seen Enter the Spider Verse? Yes. So yes, I have. So this I saw it twice. So fact. this is this is what we're sort of dealing with here is that anybody can wear the mask. You know, anyone can be Spider Man, and that that did that. They tackled that extremely well, I think. Um, and in in some senses, 
Yes, anyone except for the Porky Pig Spider Man. But I kind of like the Porky Pig Spider Man. Um, <laughs> and Spider Spider Ham, or or as, or as um, I think as Homer Simpson would say, Spider Pig, Spider Pig. Um, but I, I, I liked it. I thought it was a very well done film, and I think in that sense, anyone can be a 007, but can anyone be James Bond? And I think. Well, just real quick about Into the Spider-Verse. So the middle-aged, pudgy Spider-Man was the, quote, real Spider-Man, because he was from Earth 616. Now it's like, where did you get that? It's like a passing shot. It's like, I missed it. I was I saw in the theater twice. I missed it both times. But yes, so it's not just that anybody can do it, but it's that more than one person can do it. I, I think there's a slight difference with that, but... But I understand where you're coming from. And we have our own we we have our own Spider Verse in the James Bond world. It's called Casino Roll nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, that's that's yes. actually that's actually yeah. true, AJ, where everyone's just um James Bond. Terrible. Um yeah, and it is terrible. But I, I think that the potentiality to, to make anybody a double O seven is there. Uh, but you can't make everybody a James Bond. So the, the two things are distinctly no. different. James Bond is this person, this, this, with these character traits, flaws, whatever you want to say, these idiosyncratic elements to this character that makes him who he is. Yes, you can give that number to anybody and we can follow that story along and they can be 007 for all intents and purposes, but I don't think that they can be James Bond. You know, I, I once proposed this in a, in a post and I did it. I'm still not sure I believe that totally the idea, but given the lengthening time between films, maybe it's time for Eon to rethink the notion that you sign a bond for three or four movies, that if it's going to be four or five years between films, then maybe you just do a series of one-offs so that it's still James Bond. It's just a different interpretation every time. You don't have an, because, okay, you sign an actor for a 10 year run. Okay, what's that, two movies? Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, again, I don't know if I believe that idea, but like it might be time to think outside the box given the realities of. But Bill, I think, I th Bill, I think that's a misunderstanding of the situation. At no point ever were they going to make a Bond film every five years. Were they planning on that? All evidence and all evidence shows they were going to make a Bond film on the, as a much regular cycle as they could do. It's bigger events when a studio that owns the rights is in bankruptcy or being sold, and that causes the delay, or the distributor, that causes the delay. But they often wanted to get the Bond film out every two or three years. I don't think that's ever been their intention. Even when with this film. This film was supposed to come out three years after Spectre. It was beyond their control that MGM sought new distributors. When Sony took over from MGM in 2010, May 2010 was the announced release date of Bond 23. So I don't think Dan Jack ever intend to have such delays. There's forces beyond their control. They announced the new Timothy Dalton Bond film in the summer of 91. They didn't envisage there'd be six, a six-year gap. Well, just to be clear, MGM in its bankruptcy plan, you know, when you're in bankruptcy, you have to file a plan with the court. They said, we're going to have a Bond movie every other year. We're going to get on that cycle. It was MGM rather than Dan Jack, number one. Number two, you, I, I'm absolutely aware of these 
things that increase the delays, but I don't think it's ever been in Eon's plan to go back to an every other year cycle. I personally, based on available outside evidence, think that they felt they got burned with the whole quantum solace. Remember that it was announced as Casino Royale was wrapping up production, Sony announced yep. that the next Bond film would be out on May 2nd, 2008. Now that would have been in two years uh, between films. And that was too ambitious. And then they pushed it back to the fall of 2008. And then anyway, when, when Skyfall came out, Barbara Broccoli gave some interviews. One was with the LA Times. And she said that, you know, we have, we have accommodated studios. And she essentially said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do things on our timeline. I think every third year might be about the best we can expect. Yeah, but, but it's not. I think same. we're in agreement. It's not their plan to have five-year gaps between Bond films. I totally agree with you. But what I'm saying, but they are. T- but at the same time, they're tethered. Yes, to exactly. One of the weaker studios of Hollywood. So and I think I think that's always a possibility. In in other words, they can like say we're going to go every, you know every third year, and I don't know until MGM strengthens more than I that I'm seeing. You know, I'm, not sure. I'm going to go one step further than that, Bill, and say until there is a new owner, we won't see a routinely released Bond film again. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Okay. I, I totally I, agree I with, that. Argue with that at all. Whether that's whether whether that's the deep pockets of Apple or Amazon or somebody else, right, right. or Netflix. So here's, um, yeah, also MGM gets on firmer financial footing. Can yeah. I? Well, I would say MGM MGM has flip flopped, and they occasionally have been on firmer footing, and they've stepped on rakes. So I wouldn't trust them. To- <laughs> Step on rakes, love it. That's Boing. is that the is that going to be the the title for this podcast? Because I think it should be. I think that should be the title: of the rakes. history of MGM, nineteen eighty something to two thousand. Stepping yeah. on rakes. Um, can I float something? I know we're we're an hour and a half into this, guys, but I'm I'm kind of interested in what this does tie into what we're saying. Um, if we want more regular. Bond films coming out and maybe if another studio or another owner takes ownership um, how do how would we feel about um, a wider Bond universe in the same way that Star Wars has, has kind of expanded out with, with Disney um, and like the universe has contracted rapidly too right because mm. I don't think we're going to see the um, aunt whatever her name was spin off with um, <laughs> They they announced all these ridiculous, you know, the guy was at the end of the, I, and full disclosure, I have never seen Star Wars. Um, you know, all these spinoffs about tangential characters and a lot of fans wanted to see more of the MI6 crew in the Daniel Craig movies and we got to see a lot more of the MI6 crew and then nobody really liked it. Yeah, I, I, I think the yeah. Aunt Beru um, standalone uh, yes. I, is something I've been waiting Aunt for. Aunt May, wasn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, an extended universe sounds great in theory, and Marvel has been able to execute on it, execute on that idea. But like Warner Brothers at DC, they've had a lot of difficulty execute. They've tried to follow the same path, and they've you know gotten their fingers burned. And perhaps the most uh, ridiculous example is Universal. We're going to have a dark universe, expanded universe, Mummy, and all these rights, all these monsters we own, and that lasted one movie and like, Oh, never mind. Um, it's, 
it's and plus i'm not sure the bond universe has that much to expand with i mean it's like okay maybe you could get a felix lighter movie out of it but an ongoing series i i'm not i don't know I think the Marvel Universe has shown something, that they earned it. They did a really good job and they earned it. And they showed that not everyone can jump on the bandwagon. It takes a lot of time, thought and inventiveness. Bond, of course, has been expanded in the literary and comic world. But yeah, I don't think we're ready yet for the film expansion because those subsidiary characters haven't earned it yet. And I think over time, let's see. I think at some point, when the copyright runs out of James Bond, when anyone can do James Bond, we will get a Felix Leiter, a Money Penny adventure. That's yet to come i always say we're only at the beginning of bond and they'll explore on these whether they'll be sex successful or not i don't know but i think that's to come but at the moment it's current incarnation i think you've got to earn the right to have that combined bond universe and i don't think they've thought about doing that yet and also real quick marvel established it character by character and then they expanded exactly they've Uh, earned it they did a very clever job yeah, it was a very careful plan, and whereupon DC Warner's tried to like just yeah. go all the way. Accelerate, yeah. AJ, if if AJ, if Disney don't throw money at the US Congress again, when based on the current trademark law, when do you think when's that due to kick in? Two thousand. Well, no, that's a different thing. Trademark is different. Copyright. Sorry, no, trademark. Sorry, ex- copyright. <laughs> a copyright expands on Bond in two thousand thirty-four, seventy years after the death of Ian Fleming, and. Potentially, although we're unknown ter- territorial law, potentially anyone can adapt or make something from an Ian Fleming book. Now, whether they can bo- borrow the Bond formula, that's completely different, and we're in uncharted territory. And you'll find a lot of people, because of the wonderful work Dan Jack have done, they've changed what we expect of James Bond. So someone could film an Ian Fleming book, but a lot of the public won't accept it as Bond because what we've come to accept as Bond is different. But potentially, like all classical characters, Bond will pass into public domain domain like Sherlock Holmes like Tarzan it's just the way it happens and at some point it will be a powerful brand that will happen in future it's just a question of time because that's the nature of the IP and law yeah um, of course in, in in Canada that's already happened exactly yeah we had that one book we had that one mm. book didn't we the Canadian well it, Canadian it was a selection novel. of short uh, stories it, it, and it were terrible both. yeah yeah. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but we need to represent Canada. I live near the Canadian border. I keep meaning to go get a copy, but never got around to it. Um, AJ, I don't know if, if many people are, 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 are aware of your of your background in this, but um, obviously you're uh, you're you, you do movie copyright law. A version of uh, yeah, yeah, essentially, right? Yeah, I'm involved in that side of things. Yeah. So I'm 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 fascinated because my understanding of it when when the the, the case was closed the, the basically the McClory uh, case kind of finally came to a to a head. What I understood it was was that the judge awarded um, Dan Jack full rights to to the cinematic character. Right? Is that is, I'm correct in, in so does that ex- so even if you could potentially like when when the copyright lapses on on the novels you couldn't necessarily then take make a make a film because it would be a the, the cinematic bond it would be stepping onto onto the toes of, of, of dan jack's property am i right in saying that or am i am i incorrect? uh uh um 
I don't, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to comment on that. But here's the situation. The Ian Fleming's work, or the author, will pass into public domain. So anyone can do adaptations of that work in some form or another. Now, whether you can make a Bond film using all the copyright logos and established traditions of the Dan Jack series, obviously not. So you won't be able to use the Bond theme. You won't be able to use all, all those things they've established. And also, as there were some other bits and pieces of law that established the Bond formula, the what the Bond films do. Um, now, I don't. There's lots of variables in this. So I don't want people to go off because uh, if you notice James Bond and 007 are trademarked by Dan Jack. So it's a whole area of uncharted territory here that actually is untested. So I don't want to certainly go on a podcast. But what all I'm, the general point I'm trying to say at some point. All literary and music and artistic characters pass into public domain. They're not owned privately for the rest of their lives. Um, and artistically, the notional date is 70 years from the death of the author. So 70 years from the 1964 in Fleming's death is that. There could be lots of variables because lots of industries are trying to extend the copyright for musicians and artists. But there is a point at which, even if you extend it, Art like Sherlock Holmes, like Tarzan, like all these things. So you get a female Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes's sister, Enola Holmes, has just been announced. Variations of that will happen because it's a way of pouring new wine into own bottles. So Bond is going to be a character with us forever. Uh, it's Shakespearean in terms of uh, length and uh, variations there too will always be the spin so there will always be a new invention of Bond or that bond diverse, if you like at some point in the future um, so maybe maybe beyond my lifetime but certainly in yours Ben mm. well the, I think the other way of looking at it is <laughs> if even if you can use the material um, but you can't use any of the tropes that the Eon franchise has burned in and seared into the public um, image of what Bond should be. Never say never again is a good example of when you can't use certain things, it doesn't quite hit the same, does it? Exactly. And it's a testimony to the work that Dan Jack have done. I think there was a advert once that could have riffed on James Bond and it showed in the mm. legal work all the, th- all the work that Dan Jack have done over the years to create an image of Bond. So yes, technically, rather like that Canadian book of short stories, it's notionally Bond. James Bond is in the printed page, like fan fiction. You can call it James Bond. You can use 007. Will it have a cultural or artistic or commercial resonance? That's a completely different question. I was going to say we're way overdue and we've got one last topic we've got to cover quickly. Um, this floated around, I think, in February and then in April, and it was the day of the announcement, so it got buried. Um, Christoph Waltz, come back as Blofeld. Thoughts? I should prefix this with we, 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 we ran a poll and 80% of 1,000 votes, so 800 out of 1,000 people came back and said it was a good idea. Really? Yeah, at least your reaction was my reaction. I was like, seriously? Like- so I'm I'm happy to have Waltz back in a nominal kind of way, sort of like a Hannibal Lecter cameo, um, you know, where we go and visit him in his secure cell and, you know, he might be able to pour some some knowledge onto Bond. I don't know, but I, I think, or either that, or he's just, 
is escaped. But I, I, what, whatever, whatever the, the situation is, I think it should be strongly kind of cameo uh, situation where we where we really literally just see him for like you know, a minute, couple of minutes, um, because I think it's. It, I, I like Christoph, Christoph Waltz. I think he's a he's a he's a good actor. Um, I think he was it was a, it was not the great the greatest bit of casting for him. I, I don't think it was the, the the best portrayal and. He is he is Blofeld for for all intents and purposes, so we'll keep him. But if we can keep that to a <laughs> to a minimum, I, I think mm-hmm. I'll be happy. I think if you're having Dr. Madeline Swan return from Spectre, I think it's sensible to at least mention or footnote uh, Blofeld in this film, if it, especially if it's going to be Daniel Craig's last movie. I think it's a sensible artistic choice. And I think probably I have a faith in the producers and the writers. They know what they're doing. And they're not going to offset the villainy of Rami Malek by having Christoph Waltz overdo things. So I think it would be great to have him back as a touch base and to seal off that cycle of the saga, so to speak. Well, I would just say, given the whole Brofeld business, um, I have less faith. But you know, they're not going to listen to me. So whatever you what, whatever you got in mind, let you know. Let's see it. <laughs> I love that Brofeld. Uh, for me, I guess my disappointment was that Christoph Waltz, who's a really good actor, had nothing to really work with. You know, when we think about him. Um, gaining popularity in Quentin Tarantino films, love Tarantino or hate Tarantino. Tarantino is a scriptwriter at heart and he gives his actors a lot of material to work with. And that's why people want to work with him is because there's just a lot of stuff there. And I felt that with Spectre, he just wasn't given much. And I don't know if he overdid it or underdid it or if there wasn't anything to do. Uh, But I just, there was no, I wasn't compelled by any facet of his characterization. And I think that's why I have sort of a lackluster reaction to this because he just, he left no impression on me the last time. Um, And I'm just trying to figure out what they can have him, have him do that would be just, you know, substantial enough. And so I like the idea of having a cameo role. I think I, I find that a little bit more palatable but I don't know if they're going to do that. Well, I, I believe the out, one of the outlets that reported about this said it would be a cameo. I think the, the version that I read said it would be Madeline Swan seeing him in prison, um, which if that's true, that means that, okay, then she's probably going to have a little bit more screen time than some of us have guessed. Yeah. But of course, none of us know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Officially. <laughs> so the way I looked at it was, the way I looked at it is, um, He's really good in Bond 25. Oh, I'm disappointed he's, he, he, he wasn't that good in Spectre. He's not good in Bond 25. I'm really disappointed. He's on the screen for a couple of minutes and he tears it up. I'm disappointed he wasn't in it more. He's there too long and he overcasts, uh, overshadows Romeo Mac. I'm disappointed. I'm not seeing a way out for Christoph Waltz and <laughs> this one. I think every, every um, fork in that flowchart leads to... Mm. Ugh. You know, he's either mm. going to show up that Spectre wasn't as good as it should have been, or it's going to be a double disappointment. So he's, I, I think he's in a no-win situation, really. On this no, one. No. Well, just going back to my Brofeld comment, mm. it's like 
scab has kind of developed in the since 2015 inspector and now we're going to pick at that scab so okay um but i i could be i could be wrong and i you know the optimist in me hopes i am <laughs> i think if you didn't like specter for the for the multitude that don't like specter nothing this film can do with any connection to that film will get it right and that's fine you know they're never going to be happy if you quite like specter if you thought it was okay you you kind of like the idea they're going to at least tie off that obvious loose end more than any other bond film villain they left it open remember that was originally conceived as a two-parter so they're obviously trying to seal that off creatively something they hadn't bothered with before some i fully expect them just to completely ignore yeah. the blowfeld arc for good for better or for worse uh, but let's see what i have i live in optimism there's enough good things about this film so far that whether blowfeld ruins it or doesn't ruin it, it doesn't matter really for me we're all going to be queuing up to watching this movie yes. a few times at the cinema so right well, and a friend asked me what i thought and and he said don't you think this movie's doomed i said well no i i can't one i can't condemn a movie i haven't seen yet that hasn't even is not even completed form yet number one and number two it may be that fukunaga developed you know deliver some, you know, stylistic flourishes that, you know, get my attention that are entertaining and, you know, I'll, I'll just have to wait and see. But of course, not all people want to wait and see. I can tell you one person who I think is feeling extremely disappointed, and that's Dave Batista. <laughs> who is yeah. like the only one who was not invited to come back and asked to come back and, and loves the franchise and would probably do it for free. And they were like, yeah, he was wanting to come right. back. He had that incident. Post. It's like, uh, James, James, watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> this space. Maybe we'll get this more. Space. Maybe we'll get more than you one. You won't believe what they're going to do now. <laughs> That's right. You won't believe who's back what, in this. What this actor says about, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I I know that we were kind of going to talk about sort of the the wider implications of uh, of, of Blofeld as a character, but um, I, I I don't think it's sort of really maybe we'll save that for when it's not a spoiler. Yeah, I, let's yeah. Let's I don't I don't so, think it really really matters. What I was going to say is, I suppose, is that um, you know Blofeld's Blofeld's job in this film is is fairly as far as i can sort of see it's relatively inconsequential feels like they're just tying off a a loose end whether he's in it or not yeah i just hope they don't use him as a basil exposition Mm. you know (laughs) i i can't help but feel he's gonna be a a kind of a hannibal lecter kind of um you know character where, where they just go and visit him and he he'll kind of give you a bit of information about remy that um you know, oh, he's the he's one of my agents who blah 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 blah. You know, and it's just uh, oh, and maybe Michael G. Wilson can have the cameo of the guy who lets Bond or Madeline Swan or whoever goes in to see Blofeld through the door. Yeah, there you go. The foot. Here's Mr. Blofeld. The footnotes of all your pain. <laughs> <laughs> So we have a tradition now of this podcast of ending on a terrible song. Um, and I didn't really have a hook for this one because it's usually like find a cover of the film we're discussing. So I went out there looking for Has anybody written a song about Blofeld? Yes. Character. <laughs> and 
twice. One of them is my favorite, and I'm going to save that for another day. This one is by The Ickies. The title, the song is titled Blofeld, and uh, we'll play out on that. And thank you very much to the panel, Lisa, Bill, Ben, and AJ for joining us this week. And hope to see you again soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you. A genius contradiction Obsessed in your fiction Her emotions are hard to control You have money and power But she's locked in the tower And pretty soon some handsome nemesis will bust a move Gets the girl in the end. She tries to tell you that she loves you, but she